You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. In verse 33, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that in page uh, 249. Uh, Perhaps uh, one or two words of introduction before we read uh, the text. Uh, I suppose if there were such a thing as a spiritual oscilloscope, you could follow the waveforms of Israel and her spiritual progress. Uh, It's uh, fairly monotonous, in fact. It begins with idolatry, then God's chastening. Then God sends, uh, or there is the repentance of God's people, and he sends a deliverer followed by idolatry, uh, then chastening, then the prayer of repentance, and God sends a deliverer. And into that pattern, uh, the particular deliverer that we looked at last time, and it was some time ago, I know, uh, was Gideon, uh, whom we introduced as God's jelly baby man, a most unlikely uh, deliverer. Uh, He wasn't Captain Courageous or anything of the type. Uh, And yet God shows him. We looked at his call and his commissioning. Uh, We said something too about uh, that initial test given to him uh, whereby he was required to pull down the altar to Baal that was in his own uh, back garden. His father, uh, it would appear, uh, was the keeper of Baal in the town. Uh, And that was a, a remarkable step for Gideon, albeit he did it at night. Uh, The townspeople wanted to take his life. His father stood up and spoke out for him, uh, which must have caused Gideon's jaw to drop. Here, the keeper of Baal is coming to the side of the sun uh, and speaking on his behalf. Uh, He had seen that obedience to God's command brought blessing even into his own uh, household. Well, that by way of introduction. Uh, We're going to read now in chapter 6 and verse uh, 33. To the end of the chapter, we will be reading uh, more of chapter 7 later on. But we begin with verse 33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to Arams and also to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next morning. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. 
Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. As a youngster, I pestered my parents to take me to the cinema to see the film entitled The 300 Spartans, a film that describes a small group of skilled and fearless men uh, who delayed the advancing hordes of Persia at a little place called uh, Thermopylae. And their bravery uh, not only inspired ballads in the succeeding years, but it has enthused filmmakers uh, more recently. In contrast, 300 men more familiar with winnowing forks than swords, with little instruction in military strategy, and led by a self-confessed jelly baby man, has little box office appeal. But I want to suggest to you this evening that their victory was more significant for the very ordinariness of Gideon and his men focuses or should focus our attention upon an extraordinary God. You will remember God has enrolled Gideon in the school of faith. He's commissioned him to be the deliverer of his people. Uh, But I want to suggest that his interim report card may have read, could do better. For he had failed to retain the lesson that he had been taught concerning God's presence with him and the blessing of obedience. And I want to consider uh, the passage that we're going to look at this evening beyond the text that we read earlier uh, in three heads, a crisis of confidence, a strange subtraction And finally, a tactical triumph. Let's look at the crisis of confidence first. Gideon, remember, has experienced the transforming grace of God. He'd been entrusted with the unshakable promise of God. Gideon, I will be with you. He had witnessed the miraculous power of God. Fire had come uh, from heaven and authenticated his call. He'd experienced the blessings of obedience. Remember, he was kept from harm after destroying the local Baal shrine. And he'd witnessed the restoration to faith of his own father, the one who'd been the custodian of Baal. But despite these gripping tokens of God's favor, in verse 36, 
Gideon pesters God for further signs that he was indeed to be God's deliverer. And a question I think we're bound to ask is what has caused this remarkable erosion of faith despite all of God's promises, all of his experience of God What causes this erosion of faith, this crisis of confidence that he was indeed to be the deliverer of Israel? And I want to suggest a couple of factors uh, to you this evening. And the first follows his earlier success after the destruction of the altar of Baal in his own backyard. And it's this, to recognize that so often success can leave us vulnerable especially if we begin to congratulate ourselves on what we have achieved for God. Imagine the whisper. See, Gideon, your dad didn't think much of you. He didn't think you would amount to very much, did he? But that's changed now. Now you're a somebody, Gideon. Whereupon the enemy attacks. And Gideon, clothed with the Spirit of God, verse 34, is prompted to gather an army to his side. We are not called to serve God as solitary saints, but to engage the enemy shoulder to shoulder in spiritual warfare. But as Gideon musters the army there is a significant omission. Ephraim, one of the largest tribes and a near neighbor with a proven track record in battle, was not invited to join. Imagine for a moment Uh, that you have recently been appointed the manager of Manchester United. Hard, perhaps, for some of you to grasp, but you have been appointed the manager of Manchester United. And instead of picking the first team players for the important championship finals, you call out your youth squad. Might not the senior players criticize you? This is exactly, by the way, what happens to Gideon in chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, the Ephraim might say, why didn't you call in us? We are the obvious choice. Why leave us out? But that begs the question, why did Gideon fail to call out the Premier League fighters? He gives a kind of waffly excuse in chapter 8, but he doesn't answer the question. And one wonders, did he fear rejection and ridicule? He's no general. He's just an upstart farmer. He's got no experience. He's a nobody And while this, you will remember, was Gideon's own initial assessment of himself, had his recent triumph in his own hometown awakened a desire to be a somebody? 
want to suggest that credence for that view is lent uh, by his subsequent behavior in chapter 8 and verse 22 following, when after victory he took up a gold offering to manufacture a memorial to his achievement, the golden ephod. It's frightening to see where desire for prominence, honor, and reputation can lead. And you can be sure that whenever we become more taken up with ourselves than with God, then an erosion of faith is an inevitable consequence. Secondly, I want to suggest that Gideon falls a victim uh, to the numbers game. Uh, We read in chapter 7 that initially his army was 32,000 strong. It's thought that the combined force of the Midianites and Amalekites was about 200,000 once you add in the cooks and the bottle washers, an army of 120,000 plus the others, 200,000. The Midianites' perfection of camel warfare extended the odds from 6 to 1 to something like 12 to 1. Has a preoccupation with numbers unsettled Gideon. Whenever we allow the physical world out there to obscure spiritual reality then faith in God is eroded. We become like Elisha's servant. You will remember he was turned into a quivering jelly by the sheer size of the enemy Syrian force that surrounded him in Dothan. He was blind to the spiritual reality of the situation. And you will remember, Elisha not only said, those that are for us are more than those that are against us, but he prayed, Lord, open the young man's eyes. He he can't really see the spiritual reality of the situation. And the young man's eyes were opened. And he saw uh, the the army of the Lord of hosts, the chariots of fire, all around the surrounding uh, mountain side. Uh, what a picture uh, that uh, produces. But I want to suggest that the loss of focus uh, for Gideon caused him to be anxious for more signs. I know you've said I'm to be the deliverer, but can I really believe that to be the case? Is this really true? I'm, I, I need some reassurance. Do you know that the assurance of our identity as God's covenant children will significantly affect the way in which we behave? Prior to their martyrdom, Latimer confessed to Ridley and said, When I have a settled and steadfast assurance 
about the state of my soul, methinks I am as bold as a lion. I can laugh at trouble. No affliction daunts me. But when I am eclipsed in my comforts, when I don't have that assurance, when I am eclipsed in my comforts, I am of so fearful a spirit that I run into a very mouse hole. The collapse of Gideon's faith had driven him into a mouse hole and he needs reassurance. A wet fleece and dry ground, a dry fleece and wet ground. And what marvelous condescension God displays here in responding to his request. Gideon is given a grandstand view of the fact that God is indeed in control of all nature. Now, uh, the fleece method is often presented as a blueprint for guidance when, in fact, it is God's gracious condescension to weakness. I remember as a young student, I stood on the shoulder of what is now the M74, waiting uh, to hitch a lift to London where I had to take part in a student mission. And I prayed, Lord, if you really want me to go on this mission, then make the next car that comes along stop and give me a lift. Lord, if you really want me to go to this mission, then make the next car that stops, uh, that comes along stop and give me a lift. After the 127th car had passed without stopping, I concluded that I hadn't adequately understood the story of Gideon's fleece. You see, I'm a slow learner. But I grasped that, in fact, I was trying to manipulate God. That's what I was doing. I was trying to manipulate uh, God. Uh, And that was a lesson that was certainly worth learning. Now, God may have condescended to respond to Gideon's request, but the numbers game that contributed to the collapse of his faith was still an unresolved issue. Uh, And it's an issue that God dealt with uh, by what we have said is a strange subtraction. That's our second point. And before dealing with it, we're going to read uh, in chapter 7, verses 1 to 15. Early in the morning, Jerubbabel, uh, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into uh, their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Uh, Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. 
But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men uh, down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian uh, lay below them in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites and Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could, not, could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. And we'll leave the reading uh, just there. A strange uh, subtraction. In uh, verse 1, Gideon is invited to trust God with reduced human resources. Often we bring an itemized list to God of all that we need to accomplish his purposes. And we say something like, Lord, we need a budget of so many pounds. Lord, we need so many men uh, to help us to proceed uh, with this particular uh, task. And so the list goes on. But God wants to focus our attention not on human resources, but on the one who is himself the resource if God is for us who can be against us that that's what really matters if God is for us who can be against us it was no less important for Israel 
to see that the future triumph was God's and not hers. The what I have accomplished for God mentality can so easily creep into all of our lives and our deceitful hearts begin to rewrite history so that we can luxuriate in the limelight of what we have done for God. In Isaiah 42 and 8, God says, I will not give my glory to another. Our God is wonderfully generous in what he lavishes upon us, the good gifts that he bestows. He shares many things with us, but there is one thing he will not share. And that is the glory that is due to his name. He will not share his glory with another. And it is in order to direct the spotlight to himself that God tells Gideon in verse 3 of chapter 7, uh, and this is my own translation, let all the fearties go home. If they're scared, if they're frightened, let them go home. I'm sure some may well have joined the army because of peer pressure or because it was the bandwagon uh, that was rolling along at the time and they felt obliged to jump on, or because their wives nagged them until they joined up with everyone else. And here they have an opportunity to step back from the field of battle. And Gideon watched 22,000 very relieved men leave the field. Now do the maths. The odds have now shifted to 166 to 1 or 332 to 1 uh, if you uh, include camel technology. In verse 4, Gideon is told to continue the subtraction process. The opposite danger of fear is overconfidence. And so the army is taken to the river. They're told to drink. And the vigilant among them uh, knelt down and scooped up water with their hands. Uh, They were still able to look around, see what was happening. Others, disregarding the danger of possible attack, lapped the water up like dogs. And when the dog lappers were sent away, Only 300 were left. Now, the calculated odds are now 666 to 1 or 1,332 to 1 when you factor in the camels. And God says, I can work with that. That's fine. I can work with those odds. But I want to suggest that Gideon was in a state of shock. He is reduced to jelly as he looks at his decimated army. You see, this uh, numbers uh, game, uh, the numbers mentality is not something that is easily displaced. And it's for this reason that God in verses 10 and 11 tells Gideon to infiltrate the enemy camp. 
Okay, if you're afraid, Gideon, I see what's going on here. If you're afraid, just you nip down into the enemy camp. Uh, they're not likely uh, to have uh, too many guards on duty because uh, they have a fair idea of what's going on. Just you go down there. And it just so happens that when he and his servant arrive, they do so in time to hear a Midianite share a disturbing dream. A dream which another Midianite is just, just so happens he is able to interpret uh, the dream persuading them that Gideon's force is about to destroy them. Now, how do we account for that? There are some uh, today who want to argue that arriving in time to hear the dream and its interpretation was nothing more than a mere coincidence. These, these things happen. And indeed, the substance of the dream, well, uh, too much cheese before going to bed. What do you expect? They refuse to accept that God's sovereignty means that he can invade even the dream world to unsettle the dreamer. In practice, uh, the faith of these scoffers is a faith in coincidence rather than a faith in God. For in reality, there is no corner of the universe, no part of space and time, no atom or electron over which God does not have absolute control. You see, there's no such thing as a limited sovereignty as far as God is concerned. Did Gideon think in terms of coincidence? Not a bit of it. He knew, he knew that God had placed into the mind and heart of the enemy the conviction of impending defeat, despite their superior odds, despite their advanced weaponry. Even when every natural argument shouted, Gideon, you have absolutely no chance against these odds. None at all. There was a voice that drowned out all others saying, one man can chase a thousand. Two shall put 10,000 to flight. God is the Lord of all circumstance. He is the shaper of history. And he takes great delight in beating the odds. And it was, you see, as these truths fastened themselves to the walls of Gideon's mind and heart that he responds in a quite remarkable way. Notice verse 15. For the very first time we read of Gideon worshipping God. This, this is the thing uh, that causes him to fall on his face before God. Lord, you are in absolute, complete control. The penny has dropped. His fears dissolve. He knows that God is indeed with him. God is his resource. And his heart is awed in a way that the signs had failed to awe his heart. 
But this truth of God's control over all causes him to collapse in worship uh, before God. Uh, It is a remarkable truth to grasp. The psalmist grasps it in Psalm 56 and he says, God is for me. He's he's talking about uh, the enemies that surround him and the the difficulties that face him. And he says, "Ah, God is for me. And that is the source. That truth is the source of his worship. Now, we're not going to read the next section, uh, but we are going to go into it now with this uh, focus on God uh, restored, with his faith strengthened. Uh, Even, you will notice, the strange battle plan uh, that the Israelite army has leaves them unfazed. This is a battle plan that is worthy of a place in the annals of military history, and I think for three reasons, and we'll touch on them briefly. First, and we've said something of this, the victors were numerically insignificant. They do not include skilled or seasoned warriors like David's mighty men, men who were proved in battle. They did not possess a Goliath factor, something that would uh, intimidate or someone who would intimidate uh, the opposing army. 300 agriculturalists, by and large, believed that the sovereign God of the universe was on their side. Numbers don't matter, for if God is for us, who can be uh, against us? Secondly, their equipment was materially insignificant. I want you to picture in your minds these men queuing up at the quartermaster's tent. What would he issue them with for the battle? Would it be some supercharged chariot? Or would they have anti-camel exocet missiles that would take out uh, the enemy camels? No, not a bit of it, not a bit of it. They were given second-hand clay pots, trumpets and torches. It is a ludicrous provision until you factor in the invisible resource, God, who was their shield and exceeding great reward. That's what mattered. That was the important equipment at hand. Thirdly, notice their strategy was initially one of non-engagement. There's an interesting strategy, isn't it, for battle? Non-engagement. They were posted to the periphery of the battle site. High up in the mountains surrounding the enemy camp, they blew their trumpets, they broke their lamps, they held high their torches, and they shouted the sword of the Lord and for Gideon. And then, then, they observed God at work. It was God's battle. 
An earlier generation of Israelites, you will remember, with their backs to the Red Sea, faced Pharaoh with his chariot army bearing down on them. Uh, And they were told, you will remember, stand still and see the salvation of God. Now, that is not an easy thing to do. When you see hundreds of chariots racing down to your position, which is stationary, stand still and see the salvation of God. We acknowledge with our lips, do we not, that God is our Savior. He is our Deliverer. But there's that wee part in us that feels we actually need to save ourselves. We need to do something to get out of this mess. And that can pressure us into sidelining the Savior that we need. In the business of salvation, God delights to send us to the periphery so that we have a grandstand view of God at work. Well, what happened in the enemy camp? Well, we read that the enemy soldiers turned on each other in the dark. What's going on? Had the dream of their destruction made its way uh, around the camp, undermining morale, heightening fear, so that those in the camp strike out at every shadow? Did the multitude of camels panic and stampede at the sound of the trumpets, trampling all before them underfoot? Whatever the cause, the Midianites and Amalekites tore one another apart. And I believe we have here a metaphor of a deeper spiritual reality. God not only restrains evil, but he uses it against itself. By its very nature, evil is self-defeating. Are you persuaded of that? By its very nature, evil is self-defeating. There is no unity or cohesion in the kingdom of evil. Now, the kingdom of God reflects the Godhead. You will remember the high priestly prayer of Jesus. That they may be one even as we are one. That kind of unity does not exist in the kingdom of evil. It is a characteristic that is singularly lacking. They are indeed a house divided against themselves. And the Midianites were put to flight and Israel engaged in a mopping up operation. What a glorious triumph demonstrating what God can do with unlikely material and limited human resources. What lengths God went to to prepare his deliverer how compassionate he was towards him when his faith collapsed, how ready he was to find ways to strengthen that faith, Uh, how encouraging this ought to be for us, for we can surely all relate to Gideon at one level or another. 
Sadly, however, the narrative does not end there, but with a warning, a warning that we all need to take to heart. The published objective of God, that glory would be ascribed to him, is not realized not by Israel in general and not by Gideon specifically. How quickly Israel push God to the periphery and attempt to rewrite history. Uh, look at chapter 8 and verse 22. Israel wanted to reward Gideon by making him their king. You deserve it, Gideon. After all, you've done for us. It's as though the battle cry that was sounded earlier in the mount has been reversed. Instead of the sword, instead of, the sword of the Lord... And of Gideon, it's now the sword of the Lord. And of Gideon, you see what's happening here? Israel failed to grasp that Gideon was no more than a disposable instrument in God's hand. A mighty warrior, yes. But God made him a mighty warrior. A man of faith, yes. But God made him a man of faith. He gave him the faith. He strengthened the faith. He sustained and restored the faith. Now, lest we judge Israel too harshly, we need to ask if we have been infected by Israel's spirit. Do we attribute to men the honor and the glory that's due to God alone? Do we boast of or set on a pedestal the person who has introduced us to salvation? Rather, boast in the Savior. Do we boast in the saving faith that we have exercised to appropriate God's salvation, his forgiveness? Rather, Boast in the God who gave that faith. Do we boast in the victories we have won by faith? Rather, boast in the God who again and again and again has come to strengthen that faith in times of crisis. For his part, Gideon turned down the throne in verse 23. But, and it's an important but, nevertheless thought himself worthy of some kind of recognition. He cannot bring himself to say, I am what I am by the grace of God. He wanted applause even if in some muted form. And so this golden ephod was manufactured. And whatever spin he put on the manufacture of that ephod, uh, whether for his own sake or for the sake of others, it is intended to be a memorial to Gideon and his accomplishments. He remains, you see, infected by this earlier desire to be 
a somebody, to have a reputation, to be spoken of for years to come. And that not only hindered future future usefulness, it contributed in great measure to Israel's ongoing idolatry. They they ended up worshipping this uh, ephod. I believe that Martin Luther clearly, clearly grasped this danger of wanting to be a somebody when he famously wrote, God created the world out of nothing. And so long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. As long as we are nothing, prepared to be nothing, he can make something out of us. Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, we acknowledge this evening that You are the God who can take the least of us and use us to bring glory to your name. You are the God who is in sovereign control, uh, not only of our lives, but the very environment in which we live, our homes, our places of work and recreation. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who is in absolute and supreme control and uh, the God who saves again and again and again, the one who is worthy of glory, a glory that you will not share. And so our heart cry in your presence this evening would be that you would enable us to be content to be a nobody in our own eyes. Enable us to humble ourselves in the sure and certain knowledge that only God is able to exalt the one who humbles himself before him. Hear our prayer we ask and pray of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to Thank you for listening to this sermon from St Peter's Free Church in Dundee If you found this sermon has been helpful to you please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.